Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Thursday, July 2nd, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Here in Hazard County, no one ever suspected that the Confederate flag would be a flashpoint. Yeah, every generation has their Uncle Jesse. Have I said this before? But, you know, you kids, like the kids Andrea's age, Uncle Jesse was a guy who lived in a house in San Francisco and babysat two adorable moppets. Our Uncle Jesse was a guy in overalls who, um, yeah, had nephews who had a car with the flag. The car was called the General Lee. And so here's my idea. In fact, it's really just more of a premise. What if they reinterpreted the General Lee to be the adverb, not the historical figure? Then what would you paint the car? I'm not even going to give you any ideas, but if the car were named after the adverb, it would have a different coat of paint and a different symbol on the hood. That's my premise. So it's it's 4th of July weekend. Newscasters call it Independence Day. I understand that, but I don't have so so many facts to lay on you as I have premises. Premise, the premise of America was freedom. So let me give you a couple more premises. Maria from Sesame Street is leaving after 45 years. Maria, she's a non-Muppet. She's a human actress. She's leaving. Here's the premise. What would other Sesame Street characters do for second acts? Take it wherever you want. Snuffleupagus. No one could see him. Maybe he could join SEAL Team 6, right? A Snuffleupagus assassin. Something like that. The Count, right? Let's graft him on to Bobby Jindal State Budget Advisor. Something like that. Not even given the answer, just laying out the premise. Here is another premise. Trump being ousted, being booted, his brand being booted from Macy's. He had a brand in Macy's. What about his mattress line? There's a Trump Serta mattress. Did you know this guy had mattresses? Mistresses, yeah. What about mattresses? Here's the premise. What other celebrity products are out there that we don't even know about? Like, maybe it's possible that the star of Tron and Scarecrow and Mrs. King endorses a line of pallet jacks. The Bruce Boxleitner's Boxleiter. Something like that. It doesn't matter if it's not perfect because it's just a premise. Now, listen, before I get all Lutheran on your ass and nail these 95 premises to a church wall, let me tell you about the show. I spiel about the baseline numbers in the church burning stories you've been hearing about. But first, she's been called the female Mike Pesca. Okay, she's been called that by me. She came in third in Jeopardy. She's no stranger to punning competitions. She knows a lot about state flags, though we won't get into that in this interview. Let me introduce you to a Washington Post columnist, Alexandra Petrie, expert on, but hardly a propagator of, awkward silences. From Woody Allen to P.G. Wodehouse, the last hundred years offer a rich banquet of humor. Just about any topic under the sun can inspire witty remarks. That is the description of the Penguin Dictionary of Modern Humorous Quotations. It is edited by Fred Metcalf. 
Fred Metcalf is not with me, but Alexandra Petrie is with me. And her favorite book growing up was the Penguin Dictionary of Modern Humorous Quotations. Her new book, her first book, is A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Alexandra writes for the Washington Post. She comments on flags and other things. She's a pun champion. She came in third in Jeopardy. Join the club. Hello, Alexandra. Hi. How are you? I'm terrific. Okay, let me ask you a couple questions about your upbringing. Your dad was a congressman. He just retired. This might be uh, non-scientific or factual, (laughs) but I was thinking there are a lot of daughters of elected officials who went on into comedy or something funny. Uh, Al Gore's daughter, Kristen Gore. She went to my high school. (laughs) Oh, I did not know that. Tallulah Bankhead, right? Her dad was the Speaker of the House. House of Representatives. She's one of the greatest wits. I'm sure she was in your book of American humor. Oh, yeah. No, her... She was definitely in there. I had forgotten that, that she was Mr. Bankhead's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Speaker Bankhead's daughter. Oh, also, you know, Alice, uh, Alice Roosevelt. Longworth, yeah. Probably in your humor book, one of the quippiest people around. Do you think there's anything about being the daughter, specifically, of a uh, elected official that makes you see the world in a slightly ridiculous way? I don't know. I think... You see a lot of personalities because there's a couple of I think one of the reasons that I wanted to go into journalism is there is a couple of professions where people will come up and very intensely tell you everything that they believe is true about the world. And politics is one of them. And so we'd have like a man who would telephone us at the house and he would just talk to my dad for like half an hour. My dad would just like listen to him. And they he was there. His number was in the phone book. That's what he was for. Really? Your dad dad was listed? That was part of like your job as (laughs) an elected representative was to answer to the people. And so this man would call and he would talk just getting to walk into a room and go up to people that you've never seen before in your life and say here have a thing talk to me who are you what's your deal yeah that to me was a big part of growing up having carte blanche to do that you have to be like a writer or you have to be a politician you have to have some sort of in you can't just walk into a room and say hello there i'm here to work the room for non-specified reasons so I think they all had experiences like that, probably, if bumping into people and thinking, this is amazing. I had no idea people were so weirdly sincere about things you wouldn't expect. Yeah. One of my favorite moments was this guy who was still dressed in his clown suit, came up after a parade. He's like, I have to tell you this now. He's like, we need a backup plan. If another 9-11 happens, where is the Congress going to be? And he's sitting there and he's like enumerating this whole list. He's like, we have to pass a law. Fully dressed, fully dressed as a clown. Because now was the time and to that say that man's this. name was Tom Ridge. <laughs> <laughs> What's your theory? I want to hear your theory. Well, I think it's a, a couple of things. One, you guys, if this is true, and this is probably true not just with elected officials, but with some famous-ish or people whose fathers were had a little bit of power. One you were told you had a lot of opportunity, right? It was never a question. You could kind of do whatever you wanted. Two, you were encouraged. You were encouraged intellectually. You were encouraged, like you weren't told not to be funny, probably. Three, you have just means, right? You had enough money that you didn't have to take some sort of uh, menial job. And four, and this is the politics thing, I do think you see the world as ridiculous, this clown thing. You see a lot of the artifice of the world. And it's maybe... Maybe either you become a true believer or if you look at like someone like Jon Stewart, he really is a true believer and that shows up in his comedy. So maybe it's a combination of those things. Maybe I just cherry pick three examples. No, I think I think that's interesting. The part that you mentioned is like seeing sort of the absurdity of things and behind the curtain. And I I always just saw the people who were there there was never that moment where like a big sedan pulls up and you're having like your house of cards moment. I think it's much more like Veep in real life. It's so much more. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's these people who seem really important and then you just, you know, they used your bathroom and stunk it up, right? They just seem like regular ridiculous people like the rest of us no yeah. I, because people people are the best and <laughs> sometimes 
they're confused about things, but nobody's going in there being like, I'm deliberately evil, which... I mean, for obvious reasons. And people say this on, like, in a very deep end of the thought spectrum where they're like, you know, like, even when horrible things happen, no one thinks they're doing something horrible. But on the shallow end where it's like, why is this happening? Is it because someone's malicious and pulling strings? Or is it because a bunch of people didn't quite get the memo correctly and now we're, somebody's in metric and somebody else isn't and things are exploding? Before you began conceptualizing the book, how did you think of the concept of awkward silences? It sort of initially sprang out of something I'd written about sort of first world problems, quote unquote. Like that term has sort of faded. It it had Mm -hmm. its cultural moment and that moment is over. But the sort of idea that these days everything is so easy and it's so convenient. Things that I complain about are things my ancestors would have regarded as a miracle. It's like today you drew a two-dimensional mammoth and they were like, oh my God, (laughs) you did what? But we have a lot of things that we're very preoccupied by with like, how do I text? How do I send the perfect text? And like, how do I talk to this person? And how do I get asked out? And like, oh, no, on the subway, I made eye contact with someone for three seconds. And what are we going to do about it? And all of these, we've become pricklingly aware of these things that didn't used to, like, you just had to like make phone calls all the time. There was sexism to battle. And there's still plenty of sexism to battle. Like, I I wish that were like something like that Mitch Hedberg joke where he's like, I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to too. That's how sexism (laughs) is. But Right. There used to be sexism. (laughs) Yeah. And so this concept just fascinates me because the links to which we'll go to avoid these things that should just be a part of life if you're just living life straightforwardly. And I thought, well, I've gone to some links. Let's see if we can maybe build this into something. So, yes, in fact, I'll quote now my favorite line in the book. Embarrassing ourselves in front of strangers is literally one of the worst things that can happen to us. It's in the slot where polio used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And... When you did these things, you know, you recount how you tried out, you did a dance, tried out to be a dancer while you were in college. The ad said a pussycat doll type. Pussycat doll style dancer, yeah. And you go to a place that might be a bar or it might be someone's house because it's named... It's called My House. My House. But it was capitalized, so that sounded like a bar. Actually, somebody else, the book came out and she read this. She's like, oh, by the way, I used to be around there and it was a bar. And I was like, thank you, I thought it was a bar. And my mother was like, are you sure it wasn't a porn bar? Because my mom always like asked like, the one question where you're like, that's like one remove away from where, like she told me there's this like graveyard behind my apartment and she's uh-huh. like, I'm pretty sure it's a trysting place. And I'm like, who gave you, like, how did you, like, this is the information that also, someone gave you. how is your mother, I'm doing the demographics, how was she born in Victorian England? <laughs> okay, so you do all these things, but when you were doing them, were you telling yourself this is a life experience? Because you couldn't have been telling yourself this is my exploration of awkwardness. I've always wanted to have adventures and yeah. craigslist is a definite place to find adventures if you're up for a certain type of adventure that involves like dressing up as a cat and like cleaning someone's house but the weird thing or i don't know if it's weird the striking thing about your adventures people who tell stories and then this happened the pronoun they're usually doing is we they do it as a group you know it would be funny if we on a lark did this but you tried out for was it america's got talent on your own you do yeah. this trip to the possible porn bar on your own you're doing all these things uh, you join these writing groups as the only one with any connection to your age group, you know, and you're doing it on your own. And they're not doing it as a as a stunt for a book or even to turn into a column. I do it because I do like to have stories. Like yes. as something my initial set was I always had known I was a writer, but I'd also had the sort of conviction that I wasn't on my own, necessarily super interesting. And the way of fixing that was to go out and do the most interesting thing I could think of. Find the thing that I had like maybe an entry into it. Like I can kind of whistle in sort of a not the most deft possible whistling in the world. (laughs) 
I could use that to get access to a world and come back definitely with some kind of story. I wasn't sure what the story would be going in, but I knew that it was likely to be something where I could then go up to people and say, hey, you won't believe what happened to me yesterday. I just was mistaken for a whistling champion by an entire church full of people. Like, that's a thing that happened. (laughs) Okay, so let me ask you a couple more questions. This one's about growing up, too, and it connects to the punning. You're a pun champion. Was punning for you as a way of growing up a way to be intellectually engaged in things? If the world got boring, your brain at least could go to the place of puns. Honestly, my start with puns was my parents just gave me this book called Pun and Games full of pun-making exercises where you could fill it out in pencil. And it was... Was that the Richard Letterer book? It, it was. It yeah. was the Richard Letterer yeah. book. Uh, my d- dream is I, I want to catch him like on, on this side of, you know, immortality. Uh, and that's a strange way of putting that. <laughs> so I had this thing and I was just going through and filling it out. And I'd always also loved language. Like as somebody, I, I was reading constantly. When you're an only child, you do two things. You like read and you go to dinner parties full of people who are older than you who are talking about something and you have to listen politely. Or at least that's my experience yeah. of being an only child. So punning for you was a connection to the adult world. A way to, I mean, you got interested in it from in the book, but why why do you keep doing it in real life? Why, or maybe the better question is why? Because I was unable to stop at that point. Why no, do you think you like, couldn't stop? Yeah, it's one of those. You're sort of asking me, it's like, so like cocaine, like, why is it fun for you? And I'm like, well, because it's a dangerous drug, dude. Like once you get pulled in, like you're a punster yourself, you know, like once your brain snaps to see, it's like seeing sexism in detergent commercials. That's what it is. Once your brain turns on to see things that way, you can never just sit through a commercial like undisturbed and be like, ah, yes, that made sense to me. That was all correct. You're like, no, I see it now. And that's how puns are. They're just everywhere. Are you saying there's sexism in detergent commercials? Oh, no. Did I I just break this for you? Wait a minute. Oh, no. And this is the last compliment I want to give you. It's a great book. The name of the book is A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. And here it is on the bottom of page 48. What? He says, I give you 20 years. Huh? I said, temporarily nonplussed. Kudos for correct use of nonplussed. Yay! Does not mean unfazed. It means confused. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Alexander Petrie, A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel, the fire next time. Among the big stories this week are the reported half dozen church burnings in the South, black churches, arson suspected. Actually, this is a big story on TV. The visuals of fire play well, and you could ask the question. It becomes a debate. Who's setting these fires? That eats up a few minutes of airtime. But in print, I noticed the story has gotten much smaller play. The New York Times had a small article stuffed inside the national section today. Indeed, the greatest contribution the newspapers are making in general is context. The Washington Post reported over a period from 2007 to 2011, the National Fire Prevention Association estimates there are an average of 34 church fires a week. Strangely, the New York Times looked at the same figures and reported it as 31 fires a week. But the point remains, some of these fires are being investigated as arson, but there are just a lot of church fires every year across the United States for a lot of reasons. Now, 
One reason, another reason that print media may be showing caution in jumping on this story as probable arson or probable hate crimes is that it remembers 1996. Now, in 1996, USA Today had a series that promoted a lot of public attention in the church fire trend or trendlet back then. In fact, President Bill Clinton set up a church fire prevention task force and eventually signed the Church Fire Prevention Act of 1996. Good luck on voting against that bill. But in-depth follow-up reporting by a journalist named Michael Fumento revealed that many of the fires, originally called arson, weren't. Some of the churches described as black churches weren't. And sometimes when there was arson at a black church, the arsonists themselves were black. USA Today issued a correction which noted an analysis of the 64 fires since 1995 shows only four can be conclusively shown to be racially motivated. So am I saying that these fires weren't racially motivated? No, no, no. Just laying out some context. And of course, it's proper to note that other context is what happened during the civil rights movement when churches were, of course, intentionally set ablaze and bombed. I reported on something similar in the year 2007. If you remember back then, there were protests and arrests after a racial incident in Gina, Louisiana. And what set that off was the display of a noose. Shortly thereafter, there were noose reports all over the news. First on Fox tonight, in the aftermath of the racial tension surrounding the Gina 6 in Louisiana, this morning a noose was found tied to a utility pole, and now an investigation is underway to determine who put it there and what their motive was. Now that particular noose that's being described there was actually just a knot that was used to tie down military equipment. In another incident, a noose used in a theatrical production was mistaken as a hate symbol. So were all those stories hoaxes or mistakes? No, no. It's just that they weren't new. But then again, maybe it's worthwhile to lift up the rock to shine the spotlight. Hey, maybe nooses around the country aren't a new thing. They're still a horrible thing. But another thing goes on with many of these stories. And that's copycats. So remember those church fires of the 90s? Here's Benjamin Davis, then an online editor with MSNBC, speaking at a journalism conference in 1996. And as news media coverage increased of those areas, more fires in those areas increased. So her piece is something that I really like because it, it kept the perspective there that you do have a serious problem, but you also have this copycat effect which puts the, the journalist, especially the assignment editor who has to react immediately, it puts the, that journalist in a tight spot. Well, back in 1996, when those comments were made, there were a lot of gatekeepers. There were a lot of people preventing news from getting out or contextualizing news once it got out. This is 2015. It is game on for footage of fires, for speculating about fires, for hashtags about setting fires, even for satire about fires. Last night, Larry Wilmore on the Nightly Show addressed the trend. No. I mean, it seems unclear if this is a hate crime or just arson or accidents or some weird cosmic coincidence or if lightning just hates black people. I don't know. We just don't know. This just means that we will get a lot of coverage. Good coverage, bad coverage, context coverage, outrageous coverage. And I guess the lesson is that it is on us to separate all the smoke from the fire. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has a premise. Okay, Laura Bassett scored an own goal for England in that game, but Bassett's a hound dog. And so what about a hound dog or a hang dog expression? Laura Bassett was sad. Is there anything there? 
Joel Meyer, managing producer, laid this premise on me. He says, all right, you know Magic Mike XXL? Well, what if the dancers in that movie really were size XXL? Yeah, it would be like that Farley skit, but there's something else there. We're talking about just XXL, so maybe it's a dad bod thing? Work with it. Andy Bowers, executive producer of the Panoply Network, laid this premise on me. All right, you know the Greek financial crisis? Just compare it to other myths, like the sword of Damocles hanging over their head and unleashing Pandora's box and Syriza, the leftist party flying too close to the sun. Huh? Huh? Can you work with that? The gist is on Facebook at facebook.com slash slate gist. Send me your premises or send them to me on Twitter at slate gist. Now, here's a premise. After a day at a Poconos water park, you know it'll be a treat? Minor League Baseball, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. All right, that's not so much a premise as mutually assured destruction, and now you know my weekend plans. Have a great 4th of July. See you on Monday. Thanks for listening.